when you're waiting for the rain to come and waiting for the rain to come and you're watching that crop every day, every week, hoping and hoping, you know, doing rain dances, <laughs> calling for any rain clouds that come by. Here, cloudy, cloudy, cloudy. <laughs> Anything. Yeah, it, 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 it is one of the most disastrous years that we've had. That's Merle Massey, a farmer in West Central Saskatchewan. Here in Canada, prairie farmers say 2021 made history as one of the worst droughts Western North America has experienced in the last 1,200 years. Stunted, withered crops, intense heat waves, reservoirs, rivers, and lakes drying up. It's not just the people growing our food who feel the burn, the effects of drought trickle down from what we buy in the produce section to what's on our dinner plates. I'm Jay Famoyetti, Executive Director of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. On this episode of What About Water, we look at adaptation and agriculture. How do we design the crops of the future? And with an expected population boom of over 9 billion mouths to feed by 2050, how will water scarcity in agriculture influence our ability to feed ourselves? We'll hear from Professor Leanne Cochin of the Global Institute for Food Security at the University of Saskatchewan. First, water, and what happens when there's not enough of it. I'm Merle Massey, and this is my dog, Cinder. This is uh, Massey Panoramic's home quarter. Uh, we are the north edge of the Pallister Triangle, and we try and, and uh, we're carbon relocation experts. That's what farmers are. We try and leave that in the soil as much as possible and not, and not dig up the soil. And that's usually uh, lentils, canola, wheat. Over the last couple of years, we've been watching the, the water table go down and down and down because we went through about 15 years of some of the highest water levels that we have ever had in Western Canada. We have been watching that disappear, but this year, uh, the rain just didn't come. Didn't come, didn't come. We seeded into, into, into dust, and it wasn't just regular dust. It was that fluffy dust and you know, that really awful dust. Yeah. When we had no rain, no rain, no rain, no rain, and then that high heat dome that came across Western Canada, what happened was that the crop that had managed to germinate and not all, not all of the seed germinated because of the drought, that that did manage to germinate, just just sort of desiccated right, you know, right in the ground, and it just never grew. It will have an impact on years to come, not because it, it changes how you grow your crop. It changes what crops you're able to grow. Uh, it changes what you're going to do in terms of seed that you're going to choose to you to put in each particular quarter section. It will change your weed pressure. A bad drought year will change not only what happens within that year, it trickles down in dominoes into years to come. My name is Reg Lowe. I'm an organic farmer. live about... Oh... 20 minutes south and east of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. I've been uh, organic farming for about 25 years now. I've lived this, this way on the prairies and my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Uh, we tend to take moisture as a blessing. I farm like it's a drought and I plant tomorrow like it's going to rain. The, the weather is more extreme now than it was back when I can remember in my heyday, the last two years in 
2020, we got one and a half inches of rain for the full year. And that was in July. And the year before, for three months in the fall, I got 15 inches of rain. And then from last year to this spring, there wasn't anything but the one and a half inches. In my particular case, organic farmer, I grow crops that adapt to those situations. Like I grow kamut, which is an ancient derm. And it's very drought resistant. It takes a little longer to mature, so it can maybe take a benefit, like it did this year, of some late rains. And also I grow flax, which is, it loves moisture. So if I get a year with lots of moisture, I can take a benefit from that. That's how I've adapted on my particular farm. Well, the commercial, the conventional guys, if it's really good, they got volume and they can sell. If it's a poor year, the price usually goes up. So they get something out of it. If it doesn't grow, then they collect insurance. I'm no different than they are when it comes to lack of water or moisture. It's what feeds this country. You know, if it's there, it's there. If it isn't, it isn't. We take advantage of when it's there. We don't conserve water. Not anymore. When I plow down that clover halfway through the year, I do save some moisture for next year, which, you know, gets the crop going. And then you're still hoping, like the conventional guy, that it rains. If it doesn't rain for them, they're out to lunch. There's been cases in different parts of this country, maybe not right around where I am, where larger outfits have gone under because maybe two, three years of this. In my case, organics has saved my operation. If you do what you're supposed to do organically, it'll look after you. Like this year, the, the heat in the summer affected all the conventional guys around me. Even if they got a decent yield, they, they lost in weight, they lost in quality. But I still get half a crop. It's still there. You know, for all the, 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 the stress it went through, it's still there. Wild variations in precipitation culminating in this year's drought. That's the way farmers like Merlin Ridge experience climate change. So how do farmers solve this problem? How do we maintain our global food supply? For Professor Leon Cochin, it's about getting to the root of the problem. Leon Cochin is the Associate Director of the Global Institute for Food Security. He's also the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Food Security at the University of Saskatchewan. Leon, welcome to What About Water? Well, thanks, Jay, and thanks very much for inviting me. You know, when you were listening, we were listening to Merle and to Reg. What, what was going through your mind? Well, as a, a plant biologist, plant molecular physiologist that focuses on improving crops for, you know, shortages and scarcities of water and nutrients, this is, is getting to be kind of scary because it's there's a lot. There are a lot of tools at our disposal over, that I think we can make some significant improvements in crops, in terms of them generating more using less water and less less fertilizer. But I think in terms of water, a drought like uh, we had this year. I mean, um, I, I don't. I don't know if we have the capacity to address that just with improved crops. It's going to have to be a combination of better better ways of delivering and conserving the water. Yeah, I, so I think that that's a really important point. And it came up, you know, both Merle and Reg, and Reg in particular was saying things like, you know, moisture is a blessing. So there are a lot of farmers, especially in the prairies, especially here in Saskatchewan, that don't irrigate. I don't see that as really being sustainable. I mean, what, what do you think about that? I mean, absolutely. You know, I was just looking up some numbers, looking at the big agri-tech companies that have developed, you know, th- 
being able to perform well in response to drought is a, one of the most complex traits that crop plants have to deal with. It involves many different genes with small contributions. So they're breeding some of them, like Syngenta and Piner. They've bred for some more drought, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to call it tolerant, but maybe better performing under drought maize. And then they're talking about 10, 12 percent uh, increases in yield during the severe drought. But that when I look at the what severe drought means, it's it's reducing the yield from an optimal yield by sometimes as much as seventy yeah, percent. So you know it's a, uh, it's you know yes you're 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 not losing as much with these somewhat adapted crops, but that's just simply not enough, not for a severe drought. So. Well, that's um, not necessarily uplifting. <laughs> and uh, related to that, I want to take a step back and sort of think about big picture. And you know, I talk a lot about global, you know, groundwater depletion and. And a lot of it is driven by by agriculture and overuse of groundwater. And so we're in this in the middle of this, you know, global water crisis. I think it's being worsened by climate change, and a lot of the water use that we withdraw, you know, when we withdraw water from rivers and from groundwater, a lot of it's for agriculture. How do you think we got to this this point in time where like it's a pretty big mess? Yeah. Well, yes. It's you know when you talk about systems, food systems, incredibly complex, and particularly the economic side of that. You know, the the world is becoming more and more meat consumers, which is very water intensive. And I I love meat, but I don't see the world being able... That's another uh, change that will probably have to be made where we, we, we consume less meat because mm-hmm. there's so much water going into the grain uh, and there's so much grain that's needed to, to grow the, the various uh, animal uh, crops. So um, there's that's just one component of the system that uh, we're at the stage where with the population growth and everybody wants to eat like us Americans and Canadians eat. And uh, I think we're all, including Canadians and, and the Americans, uh, are going to have to change our, our diets in the future. I don't think we'll have any alternative. A lot of your work really focuses on roots and what's what's happening below the ground. And these these are things that we can't really see. Can you explain to our listeners how this connects to water? You know, roots are commonly called the hidden half because we, we don't see them. They grow in, in soil in an opaque environment, very complex environment. In fact, the root soil interface is probably the most complex ecosystem in the world because of all the microbes that that's like the, the the plant gut that's the absorbing zone of water and nutrients and it's been it's an area of re, of of plant breeding that has been almost non-existent cuz plant breeders and this is not a criticism of plant breeders for the entire entirety of plant breeding they could only breed what they see they 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 make measurements they what we call phenotype measure different traits what they can see on thousands of plants and there's no way they can get down into the ground on thousands of plants so they have not bred for root traits and in fact of course with the green revolution we've been breeding using luxury conditions of sufficient water and sufficient or too much fertilizer and we're breeding for other traits, and we probably have lost some of those adaptations that the organic farmer was talking about in some of the more ancient crops. Um, in fact, that's where a lot of the genetic reservoir is now for us to improve current crops by intergressing or finding the genes or the traits from these ancient crops and intergressing them so into I'm, our modern world. I'm curious then, how do you get a picture of these roots if you want to breed for 
better root traits? What are you doing for visualization? How are you, you know, how are you seeing, you know, making the invisible visible? Which is a problem with us with groundwater too. It's below ground, and you know, you have to come up with methods. So, so what have you been doing? There's several ways that we study roots. A lot of what I've done through my career is to take them out of the soil, grow them hydroponically, grow them in gels, grow them in transparent media. And then we've been using digital technology to to image the roots. For example, we'll have a, a, a root system that's been grown in a, in a gel cylinder with all the mineral nutrients in it. And we have a fixed high quality machine vision camera. And we have a computer that rotates the, 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 the plant, the root system, as it takes images, 2D images. So usually I like about 100 2D images as we rotate the root system through 360 degrees. Um, so these are very high resolution. We can capture all the roots of the fine roots. And then we have software that reconstructs that into a three-dimensional model. And we can calculate traits that we think are important for nutrient and water acquisition. And... Uh, from that, we've developed tools where we can do this on thousands, or at least hundreds and thousands of plants, so we can do genetically structured populations and essentially then do molecular genetics, identify those very discrete regions of that plant's genome where genes must reside that control, for example, deep rooting. And in fact, a buddy of mine in Japan, Usaku Uga, he used a pretty low-tech system. He grew this population that was made from a, a shallow uh, rooting paddy rice and a deep root, deeper rooting upland rice. And he grew them in spaghetti colanders with potting mix sitting in nutrient solution. Then he could get the angles, the deeper rooting have, you know, sharper angles, and he could quantify that very quickly. And he cloned that gene. It was the first deep rooting gene called DRO1. And he's now using that with breeding, molecular breeding, because it turns out in rice, a lot of the different rice varieties don't even have this gene. And some do. And uh, they are deeper rooting, and he's gone into the field and, uh, and studied under drought, and he sees significant yield increases. Now, these are pilot studies. These are not yet at the vari- you know, advanced varieties for farmers, but he's working towards that. But he's seen significant increases um, in, in yield under, under moderate and even severe drought. I think we're going to be able to tailor roots, the shape of the root systems, um, you know, we have unique ways of, of phenotyping, we call it, imaging the roots. We can do genetics. We can identify the genes. And I think we're going to be able, we're getting close to be able to control whether we want a real deep and concentrated root system or a more shallow spread out one, which may be better for flooded conditions where you need, where you're having, you know, where at least there's a little more oxygen and close to the surface. I think we'd be able to tailor them in conjunction with different kinds of of watering regimes, irrigation yeah. regimes. Yeah, I think that that's you know, the key, right? You know, if we can combine the knowledge of how the roots uh, are behaving under these different environmental conditions and these changing climate conditions, that would be, you know, I see the potential for amazing advances. Right. And, and that's actually what plant breeders have done for 10,000 years. But they've done it. They they would they would say, okay, I want something that does better under drought. I'm going to grow. I got a bunch of different uh, um, lines of a particular crop, say wheat, and I'm going to grow them out under drought conditions and pick the best performers. So I'm phenotyping, and now I'm going to cross those. You know, maybe with my elite line that I know do really well, and then 
grow those progeny. So I'm I'm been thinking about, and a lot of us think about how can we translate these tools to the field. Well, obviously hydroponic imaging, we're not. Another way we can image roots is using X-rays, um, and uh, it's all been borrowed from medical technology. You know, here at University of Saskatchewan, we have you know one of one of the best synchrotrons in the world, and it generates high-powered X-rays that we can actually visualize the roots in soil. And there are X-ray computed tomography machines that came from medicine, and a lot of my colleagues that study roots have one in their lab, and they can image roots and soil in the lab. Mm. How do you get that to the field, though? You're not yeah. going to stick an X-ray CT yeah, machine know, know. So, stuck in the field. So, so you know, you and I are, are working towards doing that, right, right? right? And so we are actively talking about visualizing the whole plant above the ground and below the ground. Right. And, you know, we can do that in a lab setting, but the real challenge, I think, is to do that in the in the natural environment. Right. And, man, if we could do that, that, would, that would just be, uh, that would be amazing. Speaking of amazing, like, this stuff all sounds really cool and, like, it would be great in sci-fi movies and, right, we could have you in there with the white coat, with the hydroponics. And, but when will it be available? What's the sort of cycle from, you know, these, these great ideas to maybe a new variety that could be planted? And the reason I'm asking is because... We're in a rather urgent time with yes. respect to climate adaptation. Well, I think um, plants are smarter than we are because they've been evolving for millions of years. I think we can go a long ways towards making bigger roots, sequestering more carbon in the soil uh, without having a, a yield penalty on, say, grain or, or whatever your, your edible part uh, of the plant that you're you know, producing. So we're working towards these better plant breeds, and we're you know bringing them to the point where farmers can can utilize them and start to plant them. Are farmers going to accept that? What are the costs involved? What's the expense? I, I know that in the case of adopting new irrigation methods, there's a heavy cost. Someone has to buy the equipment. Someone has to install the equipment. And you know, are there good pathways? for getting these new breeds into the hands of farmers and actually planted. Any farmer, if you say this this variety is going to have a five or eight percent yield increase, you know, under you know good conditions, I mean, they'll buy it. Wow! So that opens up a lot of questions, and that's going to bring me to California. It turns out we're both from California, and I want to share with you a few examples. One from a recent trip, and one from something that's been been going on for a long time. But I was in the Imperial Valley uh, Irrigation District, which is in southeastern California, just a couple of weeks ago. So for context, you know, the uh, Imperial Valley gets a very big allocation of water from the Colorado River, and the Colorado River is drying up. And so that water supply is dwindling. Yet in Imperial Valley, most of the crop that is grown is alfalfa for for cows, right? It's harvested for, for hay. We're also seeing the challenges to the orchard crops in Southern California, especially the southern part of the Central Valley, which is a huge, uh, hugely productive agricultural region. There has been a tremendous growth in uh, orchard crops, walnuts, almonds, pistachios, and of course, wine. And the orchard crops, you can't take a year off. You have to water them year round. You know, can this sort of behavior continue I guess what we're seeing, and, and I was just in Davis recently where I did my Ph.D., and uh, it was interesting because they've been replacing the, all the tomato fields on the outside of Davis with fruit trees, but they're 
watering them with drip. It's actually drip irrigation, but it's also fertilizer, right? It's fertigation. So they're they're really controlling both the water, providing it right to the roots, and the fertilizer. And that should that's a very efficient way, as you know better than I do, of providing the water as opposed to the traditional. Let's just flood most of it evaporates. Away. So that that could be the key. I I've always felt that. If we, we as scientists could work with farmers, work with extension, work with irrigation companies to, to develop optimal delivery systems for right, the optimal delivery of uh, you know, the minimum of water and nutrients, that would be a, a huge breakthrough. But what I see, so you're in Davis, you're like in, an, you know, ag, you know, in, a, in a very academic area where there's, you know, they're predisposed towards experimenting with that, and that's that's great, right? Pushing the boundaries of that technology, but you know, when you're out in the field talking to real farmers, it's all very much analog, right? I mean, you literally have to call somebody to say, "I need my water delivery," and then you have to send you know the irrigation person that works for you on your farm out to the canal to open the sluice gate so the water can flood the field. So there's this like there's this huge gap between the things that we talk about and what's actually happening and probably happening too much in the field. So how do we, how do we, you know, how that do we question. somehow bridge that disconnect? Um, yeah. You know, and again, because, you know, putting in, say, computer-controlled drip irrigation is going to be expensive at a large scale. That's, yeah. You know, so, I think but, we're going to need a lot of financial innovation, a lot of financial right. incentives, right? right? right. And, and, but what's available right now? Let's bring it back to those farmers that we heard from with Merle and Reg in the field. When you look at the field, in the, even in the summer, and you saw quite a lot of green in the field, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you'd be like, gee, this crop looks not that bad because there's all these massive green plants that were completely happy. Until you realize that they were weeds and you can't actually eat them and you can't do anything with them. And that's actually a huge problem because they're pulling whatever uh, moisture was in the soil. And it's not going into the lentils, it's going into the kochia. Kochia is a, a weed that really, really loves dry land and it really, really loves alkali. They're a salt-tolerant plant and, in a year, and they love heat. And so they grew and grew. And so all that heat that, that, that the uh, lentils went, oh my God, it's so hot, I am not growing. And they just curled back in on themselves and didn't grow. The kochia came along and went, this is beautiful. I am a tropical plant. I will grow to the sky. And so they're, they're huge. And of course, when you've got crops that, when the crop that you're trying to, to get at that you can put in the bin is, is only, you know, six, eight, 10 inches high, and the kochia plant is 36, 48 inches high, you, you have a pretty serious problem. So, Leanne, what are your thoughts? Well, that's interesting because, you know, these are plants that have been adapted to extreme environments. So if the conditions get a little bit harsh, not enough water, they can really outcompete. But what's interesting about that is there are genetic resources within those kinds of plants. A lot of these adaptive traits are in there and they've been lost due to um, uh, due to the, the breeding that we do, which is to breed under luxury conditions. And again, they can be brought in either by, by breeding, by, you know, improve maybe the ability to acquire water or the ability to 
um, to tolerate drought better or the ability to acquire other nutrients or tolerate less, less uh, you know, fertilizer inputs. And right, so, right. But it, it sounds like um, we can learn from, from the weeds. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so and, you know, they might be our enemies, but they can be our teachers too and yeah. sort of remind us of what we've lost through these generations of breeding for these what you're calling the luxury conditions. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Uh, well, thanks again, Leon. It's been yep. a pleasure to have you on the yep. podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Leon Cochian is Associate Director of the Global Institute for Food Security and the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Global Food Security at the University of Saskatchewan. Well, that's it for this episode of What About Water? We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 territory. We live and work on this, the homeland of First Nations and Métis people, and we respect that relationship. What About Water is produced by the Walrus Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. Check out whataboutwater.org as we continue to post stories, content, and resources. Our crew here at What About Water is Mark Ferguson, Aaron Stevens, Laura McFarlane, Fred Rebin, Jesse Widow, Sean Ahmed, and Andrea Rowe. Thanks to Wayne Giesbrecht, our studio technician, and to Farah Akhtar and to Jen Cannell at Cascade Communications, who put it all together. What About Water? Available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Jay Familietti. Thanks for listening.